Hi everyone, this is Tyler Buckingham, and I am pleased to announce a brand new feed on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN University. ASPNU is your podcast destination to access the cutting-edge thinking and research taking place on the campuses and research vessels of the elite academic institutions on the American shoreline. Here you will access the coastal discussions as never before, with engaging stories of cutting-edge research, innovative thinking, and students who will soon be the next generation of coastal and ocean professionals. This month, we kick off ASPNU with a four-part series on engineering with nature, featuring graduate voices from the Oregon State University. Hi there, I'm Megan Wengrove, an assistant professor at OSU and instructor for a coastal engineering with nature course. Our goal with this ASPN series is to explore the use of nature in coastal engineering design. In coming decades, we believe coastal professionals, engineers, and scientists must respond to challenges in a way that is more compatible with nature. We must learn to work with the natural world and not against it. Our weekly series premiering all month on ASPN features four ideas surrounding this theme, each story hosted by a group of OSU graduate students. This week on episode one, hosted by John Dickey, Meredith Lung, and Jake Light, we will introduce you to the little creatures that we love to eat, that clean our water, and that are used to protect our coast. Oysters. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for developing this series with Oregon State University and hosting and distributing our shows. Hope you enjoy the show. What do you think of when you imagine New York City? Skyscrapers, the Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty. Classic stuff. Yeah. There's also like New York Harbor and Hudson River. Like, would you ever go swimming in New York Harbor? No, it's so gross. Uh, don't they dump sewage into the harbor? Yeah, I mean, probably. That's fair enough. But if we would have gone like 200 years ago, uh, it would have looked a lot different. It was team with life and in particular oysters. And as New York City developed into a major city, the oyster became a major tourist attraction. So you're saying Philadelphia has its Philly cheesesteaks, Chicago has its deep dish, and New York City used to have its oysters. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you would have found almost 220,000 acres of oyster reefs covering the harbor floor. So just kind of put that in perspective, that's 170,000 football fields worth of oysters. But unfortunately, uh, by the 20th century, over-harvesting and pollution in the harbor has uh, left it essentially lifeless. Yeah, even here in Oregon, we have some beautiful estuaries and oyster reefs, but even they don't look like how they used to. Going back to originally, you know, this idea that they were this dominant feature in all these estuaries. And so, you know, it's this, it's the creeping baseline syndrome, right? You can go out there now and you're like, oh, it's so beautiful and pristine, but it looks nothing like it did before, you know, white colonial colonization on the coast and exploitation of those resources. I don't know that there's anywhere that you could find 
pristine reefs. They're probably even, right, it's hard to get your head around this, probably even more rare than old growth forest. I'm John. And I'm Meredith. And we're graduate students at Oregon State University studying ways to incorporate nature into coastal engineering projects. And today we want to talk about oysters. Yeah, at the top we were talking about New York City because there's this huge effort going on right now called the Billion Oyster Project, which is trying to bring together students and volunteers to restore the oyster to New York Harbor. But not just to restore the ecology of the estuary, but also to help provide some protection from flooding caused by major storms, like what New York saw during Hurricane Sandy. Traditionally, coastal engineers would use hard structures like seawalls, groins, and jetties to try to limit flooding and stabilize migrating shorelines. But these are expensive solutions that harm biodiversity and can have really devastating consequences when they fail. So engineers have started to look at how we can take inspiration from nature to try to find better solutions for coastal hazards. One of the challenges though in using natural or nature-based engineering is that the concept is so new that we often don't know the best way to go about these types of projects. So today we wanted to talk about one particular type of nature-based engineering, oysters. And we wanted to figure out how viable it was to use oysters to protect our shorelines and what benefit uh, it can offer over traditional engineering. Uh, but I'm just an engineer, and I don't know anything about oysters. Do you, Meredith? No, I know absolutely nothing about oysters. So to help us with that, we got uh, some experts together to give us the highlights. Uh, you heard from one of our guests before, George Waldbusser. I'm an associate professor in the College of Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric Sciences. My research largely is around animal environment type interactions with a focus on marine biogeochemistry. And so we also talked to Chris Langdon, a professor in the College of Agricultural Sciences who studies aquaculture and the effects of ocean acidification on oyster production. I came to uh, OSU in 1986, uh, probably before you were born. <laughs> so the first thing that we wanted to investigate is what's the history of the oyster and why is it such a critical component of our ecosystem? Well, the, the oyster is a remarkable animal in that um, it feeds low on the food chain, so it, it consumes phytoplankton. And so it's very efficient at converting um, biomass into edible meat, uh, because it, it is a vegetarian, basically. Uh, so it's like a, a cow. It's also a, sp a species that um, is able to grow in a lot of different environments. It's very adaptable. And um, they, if you look at the history of this country and, and also Europe, you'll find that there's a long history of, of growing and eating oysters. Culturally, they're very important. I always like to point out that the human migration actually out of Africa and through Asia and across the Bering Strait into, the, into North America, about 10 plus years ago, it became clear that the tribes that came across the Beringia Land Bridge bifurcated and many of them went into North America, into Canada and hunted large mammals. 
But it wasn't until about 10 years or so ago that people realized or discovered that another branch of those, uh, the tribes came down along the coast and actually were harvesting shellfish as a, and they probably had a much easier go of it than hunting large mammals and bison across the Great Plains. And so, and there's also some debate amongst anthropologists that shellfish is one of the diet criteria that allowed our brains to develop the way they did in an evolutionary perspective because they're so high in fatty acids. So there's this cultural connection, right? The, the first, I mean, it's not oysters specifically, but with shellfish, um, the earliest jewelry is seashells, right? Again, shellfish. For such a, an important part of our ecosystem and our history, like people really don't know that much about oysters. Yeah, it's kind of strange, right? Because I've talked about how like prevalent they used to be, how like just commonplace they were in everyday life for a certain period of time. You know, we talked about like in New York, you know, just how, how prevalent they were. And I think for most of us, we just... Yeah, taken for granted. For sure. And I think like how cool it is to think about oysters as being this critical component of our evolution as a species and big driver of how we've evolved and where we've evolved. Uh, but from a modern perspective, <clears throat> it's really the value comes into the, what we call ecosystem services. Oysters provide that filtration capacity. So they clear, clean the water up. They improve water clarity. They provide food. Oyster reefs in general, when you let them grow and evolve into reefs, which they usually do, they provide a lot of habitat for fish and other animals as well. And then storm surge is another benefit. So they provide a kind of natural buffer for from storms and flooding in some ways. Yeah, so some of that stuff George just said about the ecosystem services sound like really interesting things to try to take advantage of uh, from an engineering perspective. And we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, the oysters in New York Harbor have really decreased, but estuaries have changed globally as well. Um, and when we think about oysters, we don't really think about them being rare or, you know, drastically impacted by humans. But uh, in talking to our guests, it, it seems really clear that they have. We fail often to realize that they were kind of the dominant things in many, in many estuaries for a long time because of their food properties and, and uh, their ability to easily be harvested. They were substantially over-harvested all over the world, um, but largely in, in most estuary, in most temperate estuaries throughout the world, they were probably the dominant fauna that were there. And so, for example, in Chesapeake Bay, um, when the colonialists first sailed into the bay, they would shipwreck on oyster reefs because they were so prominent around the entire bay. Back in the pre-1960s. Hey, Meredith here with a quick correction. That should be 1860s. Uh, the oyster populations there would filter the whole of the Chesapeake Bay in one to two days. Um, now it takes almost a year uh, to filter that volume. So that's because, again, the, the populations have declined considerably through over-harvesting, removal of the shell substrate, as well as uh, diseases. And that's of critical concern because the oyster requires a hard substrate for settlement. So if you remove the uh, hard substrate, the um, shell material, uh, there's nowhere for the oysters to set or they're attached 
to the shell. Um, and so the, you're in a, a spiral basically of decline where uh, the animal cannot restore itself um, because of lack of substrate. Before talking to Chris and George, um, I knew that oysters grew on reefs, but not how critical it was for them. It's, it sounds crazy, but they actually removed huge chunks of reefs to be used up in making roads and cement. Um, yeah, like I think what people, like we think of oysters and we think about people using them for food, but people really used to utilize the shell as a building material. We've heard a little bit about oysters and their history, but how do they actually, like what do they actually need to grow? Oysters have a complicated life cycle. So there's a, a larval stage where the larvae swim around for two to three weeks and disperse. And, um, and then they go through a process called metamorphosis and settlement. And what they do is actually settlement and metamorphosis. So they, they attach to hard substrate. They lay down a biological cement and then they metamorphose. So their whole body structure changes from the larval uh, uh, body structure to uh, uh, the body structure that you see in adult oysters. Um, and then that baby oyster, which is called a spat, uh, grows, you know, over a period of one to two years to an adult. And um, when it reaches adult size, it's obviously able to spawn naturally and release gametes into the water and those eggs will become fertilized and the larvae will develop and grow and then they will set in the in the natural environment okay so we just heard from chris what the oyster life cycle is and how they reproduce naturally but um we all know that like oysters are used in food really frequently and there's a huge aquaculture industry for them. One of our major questions was, can we use some of the techniques that people use in oyster aquaculture to help make these oyster engineered features more successful? Or could we even make these natural nature-based features more attractive to people? Yeah, kind of like one of the tantalizing things about the oyster is like, it's, it is food, right? So if there's like a way that people can enjoy this as like a coastal defense thing, but also get enjoyment out of it uh, where they can go out and interact with it, you know, uh, by harvesting it and eating it. Like, is that something that can kind of be taken advantage of in the planning of uh, like an oyster-based, like natural coastal defense project to try to figure out like how the aquaculture kind of interacts with some of our questions we're wondering about. We asked uh, George to kind of explain to us sort of how aquaculture with oysters works. The difference often, you know, to make sweeping generalizations, you know, the difference between sort of wild harvest fisheries and aquaculture is that your reliance on technology, you have to understand and close the life cycle of the organisms or certain components of it. And what they're doing frequently is trying to actually push the limits of biology in a sense. So in the wild, Chrysostria oysters in general, so we have the Pacific oyster out here, Chrysostria gigas, East Coast is Chrysostria virginica. Chrysostia oysters in general produce, one female oyster can produce 10 to 20 million eggs. And the survivorship out of that in the wild is often well less than 1%. So it's a fraction of all the eggs that are produced actually will survive. In a hatchery, they're trying to get that number as high as they can because 
the more larvae that survive, the more money that they're going to make and the more efficient and profitable the business model is. So like in the Nitar's hatchery, 30, 40%, 50% of the larvae, they get all the way through that they that will survive. So it's a tremendous you know, difference between if you're just relying on those natural oysters that set out in the field and you don't have to understand the life history and very carefully understand the criteria and the diet and everything else that will help those larvae actually survive. So John, after talking to Chris and George, do you feel like you have um, a better foundation on your oyster knowledge? Yeah, Chris and George really uh, kind of laid out a lot of cool, interesting stuff, learned about the, the oyster's life cycle and like just how important like substrate is to, you know, allow the the juvenile oysters to be able to settle and, and grow and turn themselves into an oyster reef that uh, then provides like all these critical like ecosystem services that filters the water, um, you know, provides habitat for other uh, animals in the in the ecosystem. And we also learned, you know, some really interesting stuff about how uh, uh, aquaculturalists raise oysters uh, right now, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, so they gave us a ton of information and now we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we're going to learn a little bit about how we can use the oyster and natural and nature-based features for coastal hazards protection. George, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you pull up at the oyster bar, what's your favorite type of oyster to eat? That's a good one. Uh, Olympia oysters are really good. And so there isn't a big aquaculture component to, for them. But Oregon oyster is, in fact, one of the few growers on the West Coast that actually grow them. They're, they're really, they, they're very oystery. So lots of people like Pacific oysters because they're, there's not, I mean, I think there's not as much flavor to them. And uh, despite being out here on the West Coast, I do, I think I enjoy Chesapeake Bay oysters better than most of ours here. But I don't, I've never come across an oyster I don't like, except the couple that have gotten me sick. But, cause I have had, I have had some food poisoning a couple times, but I still eat them, so. So yeah, if you get your hands on some Olympia oysters and you can get them at Oregon Oyster Company in right outside Newport, those are pretty fantastic. So if you're, if you're looking for recommendations cause you're gonna go try to get some, that's what I would go get. Welcome back. Uh, so we just learned a lot about kind of the oysters natural life cycle and sort of a lot of uh, cool stuff about the oyster. Uh, and, and now we kind of want to shift gears and think about uh, how engineers could actually utilize oysters and their designs, like what kind of considerations uh, they need to take into account, including them and um, what kind of strategies there exist for that. So to talk to us about uh, these engineered oyster reefs, we brought another expert in, Dr. Rebecca Morris, who is a research fellow in ecological engineering at Melbourne University in the College of Biological Sciences. And her research is focused on nature-based coastal defense systems, including mussel reefs, oyster reefs, and mangrove forests. So she's going to introduce some different techniques that engineers use to build these artificial reefs. So the first kind of 
um, step in creating an oyster reef is to put down some kind of substratum that they can that they can colonize. And so that substratum has taken lots of different kind of shapes and forms in all the different areas. And so it ranged from something that was actually very natural looking. So these are things like oyster mats, where there was mats with oyster shells attached, bagged shell, where you just have recycled oyster shell in bags or even loose. But then it ranged right up to um, precast concrete structures, so things like oyster castles, and these are smaller units that can be stacked in various configurations. But then you also get even larger precast concrete structures like reef balls and um, shore jacks, which they look very similar to kind of the concrete units that would be used in a standard breakwater design. So Rebecca just mentioned a lot of cool strategies for oyster reef structures, but I guess what I'm wondering is what materials can oysters actually attach themselves to? Yeah, how do we get them onto the reef? Yeah, oyster, oysters love concrete. Um, it's a form of calcium that they use for producing shell, but they'll attach to most hard substrates. So uh, wooden pier pilings, for example, they also uh, will attach to. Um, I had a colleague, this was way back in the 80s, 1980s, who was involved in restoring oysters in the Delaware Bay. And um, what he was interested in doing was, was taking all the waste um, toilets uh, that are discarded and crunching them up and putting those in the bay because, you know, they're made of porcelain. They're very hard. And as a, oysters like anything with, with calcium in them. And so this was a project that he was very interested in. There are an awful lot of discarded toilets in the world. <laughs> but um, but whether it's economic to you know to actually make concrete for this particular purpose is a, is another question. So there's a lot of concrete waste, you know, when they knock down a concrete building, a lot of rubble is generated. All of that would be good substrate uh, for oysters. So it would be another way of of basically instead of putting the concrete waste into a landfill. If they took the concrete waste and, and created oyster beds, uh, it would probably be a better use of that material. So Chris just talked about using concrete in kind of other sort of artificial materials, but like, do oysters care? Like, you know, like the natural oysters obviously aren't building on concrete, like the reefs are made out of other old shells and stuff. So like, does it make a difference for the oyster? They have a swimming stage as little babies, right? And then they settle on something. Actually, for those experiments, we've done both uh, thin PVC tiles, but also just shell. They, they like shell the best. And actually, there's some studies that show they can actually, that the, the little juvenile oysters, when they're looking for somewhere to settle, will recognize proteins that are in the adult shells. And will preferentially, they'll then pick those over other hard substrates. But they'll settle on lots of things. So is that kind of the failure of those concrete castles is that they don't provide that anoxic environment or? Well, yeah, I guess I, you know, I, I would hate to say a failure of them, but it would be a shortcoming. And, you know, the concrete won't degrade the same way as an oyster shell will. And so those might work great for what they're intended to do, but they're, but they're not going to be identical to what an oyster reef does. 
outside of having access to, you know, bushel loads of shell, it's a probably a reasonable approach to try to put some moistures back in the water. So we just heard a lot of really cool information about the substrate and how, what engineers could use to mimic natural reef substrate. And that's probably one of the most important questions that an engineer uh, wants to know if they're building an oyster reef. But George said something that I think is really interesting right at the end there, which is that we're not trying to exactly mimic what an oyster reef does. We're trying to engineer a reef that fills these protection services. And so in doing that, we're not going to be able to exactly copy the natural system. A few papers have shown is that there's potential for an ecological trade-off when you use living shorelines because you're designing them for the coastal defense aspect, not just the ecological aspect. And sometimes designing for coastal defense means that you design them in a slightly different way to how you would for kind of a restoration objective. Um, so there is some trade-offs then between the different objectives of the projects. But then when comparing that to a traditional structure that might not really support much, might not have much ecological benefit, then they do much better. I guess there's been a lot of research to date now that has shown that where you armor the shorelines, you lose a lot of biodiversity and a lot of this ecosystem services that go with it, which includes coastal defense, because a lot of these um, coastal habitats like mangroves and salt marshes and dunes can actually provide a natural coastal protection. Rebecca just said some, you know, really interesting stuff about kind of the, the ecological benefits of engineering with nature and, you know, these strategies still allow us to achieve a lot of the engineering goals, you know, that we think about a lot of the times with coastal protection, things like dissipating wave energy, reducing erosion, uh, helping with coastal flooding. Uh, but the kind of the difference between uh, these nature-based designs and the kind of the traditional work that's been done is that uh, it, we're using something that's part of like kind of a larger environment. So I think as designers, we really need to make sure that we hold on to that and make sure that we're looking at the ecosystem that they live in kind of holistically. You know, these animals don't live in a vacuum. They need their, the other parts of their food chain and stuff to kind of work together. And I think there's probably, you know, kind of what Rebecca's hinting at there is we get a lot of extra value out of that that we might that we wouldn't get out of traditional structure. Yeah, so some of those the benefit of including that holistic design perspective is that we think about how our engineer feature is going to interact with the other things in that environment and how they can provide co-benefits for each other. So one example that we heard a lot from our speakers was how oysters and seagrass could interact with each other and how oysters can improve the environment for seagrass and seagrass can improve the environment for oysters. And together they improve the habitat for all of the other organisms in that ecosystem. One example is how oysters and seagrass provide co-benefits for each other. And Rebecca is going to tell us a little bit about project that she's worked on where they've tested how oyster cells impact seagrass. The other thing that's, um, so this has been led by a PhD student. Um, he's also been looking at seagrass colonization. When you put in kind of an oyster reef structure, shoreward of that structure, it can provide well, it provides a more calm environment that can then promote um, seagrass colonization. On, in the area that we have put the reef in, there's been a lot of seagrass that's colonized. 
that we still need to look at whether that looks like it's the cause of the reef or just um, a wider just kind of pattern in seagrass more extensively. But there has been studies, again, from the U.S. Um, that have shown that the oyster reefs enhance fish species, um, especially those that are commercially important. They've shown the sea- that they can promote seagrass as well. And now George is going to tell us how seagrass affects oysters. So what we did with this experiment was we set new oysters on shell at the hatchery in Etarts. And after about 10 days where they kind of harden up at the um, hatchery, then we just put them out in the field into a seagrass bed or no seagrass bed. And there are two different seagrass types out there. And so we looked at both of those and at control sites for each of those and then measured the chemistry. But when you look more at the dynamics, because these systems are highly dynamic and the seagrasses are taking CO2 out of the water during the day and releasing it at night when they exhale effectively. So we'd still get really bad conditions at night, but during the day, the the CO2 chemistry was much better. The carbon dioxide levels were much lower. And so what we think was happening was that in those good times, the oysters are growing better. So it's this process we call compensatory growth, where when things are good, you make up for the bad times, even though at night it was still pretty miserable in terms of the chemistry, but during the day they could grow faster and catch up. So George, in the seagrass experiment, did you all look at how the grass was attenuating some of that wave energy and if that affected the growth of the oysters? Yeah, we didn't measure that. And that's a really good because there is a part, there's also not only the physical kind of like forces, I think in general, they can handle pretty good flows. And we know that there is a possibility that what this, one of the things the seagrasses do are actually capture particles right? Because of that attenuation of the wave energy, they tend to capture particles and they fall out of suspension more easily. And one of the, the possible explanations beyond the chemistry would be that there is actually more food available in that system in some, some way or another. Another a third co-benefit that um, we've talked about before a little bit is that oysters filter water. In terms of filtering and clarifying the water, you know, if you were, if you were trying to build filtering plants to do the same, it would cost you billions of dollars. But having a natural species that's able to do the same is really important. And by keeping the phytoplankton concentrations down, um, what you do is you avoid these periods of phytoplankton blooms and crashes that cause anoxia. So very low oxygen concentrations can result from that kind of phytoplankton crash as the bacteria break down the phytoplankton and use the oxygen as part of that. You know, I'm just sitting here, I'm thinking about co-benefits. You know, we've talked about aquaculture a little bit. I wonder, you know, how nature-based engineering and kind of aquaculture can kind of work together or if they like even can. Maybe a good place to start, uh, you know, understanding the, the aquaculturist is actually understanding the techniques and tools that they use when they're raising oysters. Well, so there's all kinds. Uh, there's actually many different ways they do that. The, the sort of simplest one is what they call bag on bottom. And so the, the oysters will go into the, kind of these heavy plastic mesh bags, and then they just get staked down on the, on the seafloor or on the floor of the estuary. Um, so there's that sort of approach. And those oystermen will go out pretty regularly and turn the bags over and clean them off because they'll get silt in them and whatnot. It ranges from that to 
in Yukuna Bay, there's Oregon Oyster Company and they do uh, line culture. And so they actually put, they take tri-woven uh, poly line and they actually weave the oysters into that line and hang them off a docks and grow them. And that changes some of the growth characteristics and qualities. And so that's often a, a technique for um, putting a lot in a small space, right? Because you're taking advantage of the vertical and it also creates oysters that tend to look more, uh, they appear better on a plate for a half shell market. So some of the nature-based features we've been talking a lot about in class are oyster castles, which are these concrete structures that people put in for wave attenuation. And it sounds like using current aquaculture practices, you would never use an oyster castle in aquaculture. It would always be on something that's more easily removable. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, it's not to say that somebody isn't trying it or doing it. But yeah, I mean, from an aquaculture perspective, you want to be able to get those oysters out easily. And if they were growing on a concrete block, you'd have to be out there chiseling them off of the block. I mean, the, the closest thing I would guess is they do these, what they call long line, and they put posts in the ground, in the tide flat, and then they run these long lines among them, and they'll hang bags off of those. And that, I would imagine that would act in some way to attenuate um, but if you can convince oyster growers to grow them on reefs, that would certainly work. Um, the problem back east in Chesapeake Bay with the oystermen is as soon as any time that they did any restoration, any time that they knew there was a reef there, as soon as it got opened up, they would just, they would just, they actually use hydro, um, hydraulic tongs and they just go out and just crunch the whole thing right down. So, I had a colleague who had work he did on oysters in some of these um, restoration sites and they have to put full scale chain link fence over them because otherwise the hydro tongs will come out here and just rip everything out. So they'd go down diving on these things and look, they'd get these mangled masses of, of like steel chain link fence, but it would protect the reef from the, from the people trying to harvest them and the oystermen. So it doesn't sound like they're necessarily incompatible practices, but, um, you know, kind of what George said, we need the reef to be able to establish. And then I'm also kind of just curious if there's other kind of food safety like considerations we need to think about if we want these to be sources of oysters for recreational and commercial harvest. Good question, John. And uh, Chris actually has some thoughts on that. I think initially you'd want to protect the reef from harvesters because you want to maintain its integrity. But over time, that reef should grow and expand, and then there'd be surplus oysters for harvest. Uh, so the two aren't incompatible. Um, and if you, if, you, um, if you look at what's going on in Europe, um, they are... Plant, they are planting the oysters uh, as well as using them for food. Um, there are some other examples, however, where um, it's not possible to use the oysters or mussels as food. And, and that's because of contamination problems. So this billion oyster project in off New York, the oysters probably will be contaminated with chemicals and maybe bacteria from the urban uh, area, adjacent urban area. 
Yeah, the shellfish um, tend to be um, susceptible to all kinds of pollution because they filter very large volumes of water. So water is continually going through their gills. And so they absorb dissolved you know, organic material in the water, um, as well as metals, as well as bacteria and viruses. So that's why it's really important to maintain good water quality um, for farming oysters. And one of the claims that the oyster industry has on the West Coast and the East Coast in this country is that they um, monitor the water very, cl very closely because their livelihoods depend on having clean water. And so when there is a, a pollution problem, they're usually the first to draw the um, public authorities' attention to that problem. So you were a consulting engineer, John. Tell us a little bit about what engineers want to know. I mean, I think in general, like, you know, engineers hate recreating the wheel. We want kind of like a sort of like a sort of a systematic way to think about, you know, whether or not something's going to work or not. Right. And so I think kind of the issue we're kind of dealing with these uh, the oysters is like oysters don't grow everywhere. So like there's got to be some sort of conditions some like sort of check checklist kind of thing that we need to work through to make sure that it's going to work. Yeah, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of just compile a list, basically like a, a mini design manual of all the things that we learned from our the experts that we've talked to so far. The most important things that an engineer should talk about look or think about first is whether there are oysters occurring naturally in their system in the first place. That's a really good point. You know, if there's already oysters there, it's probably a pretty good bet that oysters are definitely going to work. I know one of the other things that Chris mentioned at one point was like the oysters only spawn and like transmit their, like a lot of them broadcast spawns. So they send out all their little juvenile, like a single adult oyster sends out like millions of these little baby oysters and they swim through the water and they need to attach. But he kind of mentioned that it's only really possible at certain water temperatures. It needs to be warm enough or else they don't do that. And so like here in Oregon, there's a lot of places where that's just not possible. Right. So it might be possible to establish a reef in Oregon, but that would mean that in order to sustain that reef, you'd have to keep putting new oysters on the reef. Yeah. Which would kind of defeat the purpose of this like sort of dynamic structure that we want to kind of be self-adaptive. And another thing that we heard from our experts was that the height of the reef structure is really critical. On the one hand, you don't want to build your structure too low because then sediment can bury it and cover up your oysters and kill them. And then on the other hand, you don't want to build your structure too high because your oysters are at risk of like being outside of the water. They might, they might be prone to desiccate and die. Yeah. And then we've talked a little bit about wave attenuation, that being kind of one of these like primary goals almost of this structure that we're sort of envisioning, right? It's this oyster reef that's able to kind of help help with wave attenuation. And that's like the, you know, the oysters themselves, like the adult oysters are strong and capable of doing that. But if you want this self-adaptive thing, like the wave climate can't be so energetic that the juvenile oysters, they need the opportunity to be able to attach to the, the structure. And so 
you know, in estuaries like that wave climate is seasonal. So theoretically it's possible, but you know, if you're someplace where you have a really energetic wave climate all the time, it's just probably not going to work. Right. Like you don't see oyster reefs occurring naturally on the open coast. They're always in right. a somewhat protected area. And then kind of lastly, you know, obviously everything on the food chain has its predator and there's predators for oysters. There's these drills, which are kind of like snails that like to, uh, eat them depending on where you are in the world. So yeah, I guess when you're looking at a site, right, you need to decide if you have just like this prevalence of that predator, that could be a real issue for you as well. Yeah, Chris mentioned um, in some restoration projects that they have to go out and manually pull some of those, the predator's eggs out so that they there are fewer of them in your system. Another thing that we mentioned going back to the height of the structures that we mentioned like you don't want your structure to be too low because you don't want your structure to be buried. But if you're building the structure for wave attenuation, that's not ever really going to be a risk because you want a tall structure. A tall structure is going to be more effective at limiting wave action. But since you can't have your structure necessarily be that tall for the oysters to want to be on it, one thing that you can do instead is make a wider structure. Rebecca kind of mentioned that there had been some wave uh, wave flume studies that have been done sort of in a laboratory setting where they looked at that and found that a wider reef was, you know, a, a good compromise. So that way you could keep your oysters uh, kind of in their comfort zone in terms of how exposed they are, but still get a lot of that wave attenuation. Yeah, so we covered a lot of the sort of design considerations that an engineer would need to think about. And, you know, it's it's totally an open topic of research. And so there's a lot of specifics there that still need to be worked out. But those things that we talked about are a great kind of starting place for, you know, utilizing oysters and kind of a natural-based coastal uh, design. And so we're going to uh, go to a break. And then uh, after we come back, we're actually going to talk about some of the, the big challenges facing the use of oysters kind of going forward into the future. So, Chris, when you pull up at the oyster bar, what's your favorite oyster to eat? Ah, uh, good question. Yeah. So, there's a, a species of oyster called the Kumamoto oyster. So um, it's called a Crassostra sycamea. Uh, it's different from the more traditionally cultured oyster, which is uh, the Pacific oyster called Crassostra gigas. But the, the Kumamoto oyster is something that you should experiment with if you, if you like oysters, or even if you don't like oysters, you may like this spe species because it doesn't have the metallic taste of the Pacific oyster. It's a much uh, sweeter and nuttier flavor. And um, it's it's great on the half shell. So if you're able to eat an oyster live, um, some people don't like that idea. But uh, if you go to an oyster bar and ask for a Kumamoto oyster, um, it's a very nice deep cup shell. It doesn't grow very large. Um, that's really the best way to eat them with a little slice of lemon and they just slide down. Okay, so hairy challenges. Um, we can't talk about coastal engineering without talking about sea level rise and climate change. 
But we also know that climate change is driving um, an increase of the risk of these hazards. So through sea level rise, a change in um, wave height, wave direction, storm frequency or intensity. And so into the future, there's going to be a greater demand for coastal protection structures. But from an environmental perspective, we can't keep hardening the coastline. And we also know from an economic perspective that they are really expensive as well. And part of this expense comes from the fact that these structures are non-adaptive. So they, in response to climate change, they need to be rebuilt. They need to be built higher. If they become damaged, they need to be fixed. And this all comes at an expense. Whereas if you can actually harness some of the natural coastal protection um, strategies uh, from natural habitats, then they have the potential to be adaptive to climate change. So things like um, studies have shown that oyster reefs can grow at the rate of um, sea level rise. Things like mangroves and um, salt marshes again can accrete. If there's room, they can move back. Um, so they have the potential to be adaptive and also self-repair. So another really good study showed that salt marshes could actually, um, after a hurricane in the U.S., actually repaired after a year. Whereas things like bulkheads that got damaged would need to be re-engineered and repaired. And so I think they have the potential to A, be more environmentally friendly, but also B, be more cost effective under climate change. Right. So one of the benefits of using natural based uh, features for coastal engineering is this idea that they can adapt with sea level rise and climate change. Um, and so we wanted to look at uh, if there was any evidence that oysters and oyster reefs were have been able to do this in the past. And I suspect with the oysters, it's it's similar, you know, in the sense that that whole system, it's made up of, you know, millions of, or I don't know how many shells in an oyster reef, right? But millions of shells say, and as, as the conditions change or as sea level rises, you could imagine that you would start building different parts of the reef. And so it might actually respond in some way, you know, lower elevation parts of the reef might be abandoned and you might get more and more settlement in a higher. So as you, you know, might cause the whole system to migrate a little bit which again, I think is one of the challenges you face with some of the engineering perspective is to build in the long-term responsiveness. So George, in different marsh restoration and coastal engineering projects, um, we've heard about designers trying to build in accommodation space for the marsh to migrate with sea level rise. Are there ways that engineers should design oyster reefs to be able to migrate? I, I think it's a I mean, it's, it's probably a good thesis question for one of you guys. I don't, I don't know that anybody's thought about it that much. And I think because the difference is, if you think about marshes, I mean, there's, there's, you know, I mean, we can argue about how prevalent and their, you know, long-term viability, but there's a lot of acreage of marshes around for people to study. There's not, there's so few acres of natural oyster reef around that you could really, uh, study it in some way and be able to interpolate, you know, where it had been, you know, 200 years ago and where it would be right in another 200 years versus salt marshes where there's a lot more methodology and uh, an availability to study those systems to understand the dynamics and the particle trapping and so on. So it seems like a great dissertation question for somebody. 
Okay, so if we're thinking about building an oyster reef that is engineered to last centuries, that can evolve with sea level rise, then we also have to think about how that environment would be affected in other ways by climate change, not just sea level rise. Well, the big threat to oyster production globally is ocean acidification. So as we pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, um, higher amounts uh, dissolve in the ocean. So the ocean absorbs probably about 60%, maybe a little higher of the CO2 that's put into the atmosphere. And the problem is that over time, uh, that accumulated dissolved CO2 changes the pH of the, of the water. So it becomes more acidic. And um, what that does is change the water chemistry, the carbonate chemistry of the water. So the higher the acidity or the, the lower the pH, um, the less um, carbonate ions are present in the seawater. And the oyster larvae in particular are very sensitive to concentrations of carbonate ions in the water because they use calcium carbonate in their shell. And um, we're seeing um, acidification levels that we probably won't see globally until the end of this century. So we're getting a, a preview, if you like, of what ocean acidification could be like if we continue pumping CO2 into the atmosphere as we're, we're doing at the present time. And so it's going to have a global effect on oysters, as well as other shellfish, as well as other calcifying organisms, because the basis of the food web, the marine food web, are crustacea, so zooplankton, are really important in acting as a food, either directly or indirectly, for most of the fish which we capture and eat. And those crustacea have calcium carbonate in their exoskeletons, so they're going to be affected um, by ocean acidification too. So not a rosy picture for the future. Yeah, I mean, who thinks about things on 100-year timescales, right? I mean, that, I mean, really, right? I mean, and that's, it's good to, to be considering it, but I don't know. I sometimes wonder if any of us will be here in a hundred years. So, and not just because of what's going on right now, but you know, all the climate change. I mean, I, you know, so I don't know. I mean, so sea level rise and uh, ocean acidification are these sort of generational problems that are occurring on the timescales of decades and centuries. Um, but you know, as engineers and planners, we kind of deal in these. Uh, constructed timescales when we talk about permitting and funding cycles and stuff that are kind of on the orders of years. Um, and that can pose a lot of challenges as we're trying to, to use oysters for these types of projects. Yeah, and, and these, the challenges around like funding and permitting cycles, um, it's tedious to deal with, but if we don't address the challenges in the current system, then we won't be able to use these natural and nature-based techniques that are better for the environment and potentially more cost-effective. Right, uh, at least here in the United States, in order for like the government agencies to deal with like what, you, you know, how you pointed out, like these tedious, you know, problems 
and like stay on top of them, like for the long term, it's like super helpful to have an engaged and like educated public who are invested, like, you know, personally in those, in like seeing those problems through for the long term. Definitely. And, you know, in order for these projects to be effective, we probably need to start, start them earlier than we are now. And here's Rebecca talking about that. In terms of when you're using nature-based coastal defense, you need to be more forward thinking. And I think, well, at least I can only speak for Australia, but um, I think it's probably um, similar around the globe, is that coastal management tends to be more reactive. So it tends to, you tend to protect a coastline when it really has the erosion or flooding has got bad and you're about to lose kind of an important infrastructure or something like that. And so, of course, the hard structures, they take less time to build and they take less time to be effective. I guess it's really about trying to encourage coastal management to be more forward thinking because if I guess if you really are in the situation where you need to protect something now, you're never going to be able to use nature-based coastal defense. So it's really about looking at the coastline, looking at where it's going to need protecting, say, five years down the line and putting it in now so that it can be effective when you need it. Yeah, so permitting and funding challenges aren't the only things holding us back in terms of making these natural-based engineering projects more widespread. Yeah, that, that's a good point. When, when I was a consulting engineer, I relied really heavily on, you know, for the work and the work I did, it wasn't the, the same kind of work, but um, we relied really heavily on the science that had been done by government agencies and, and academia. And I, I think, you know, if we, with oysters specifically earlier, we talked about how dependent they are on wave height conditions and uh, water temperature and things like that. And it's, it's really just not economical for the consulting engineer on a case-by-case basis to do all the science they need to do at each site to figure out all of those different parameters, you know, tell you how successful like an oyster reef could be and the things they need to know to design that. And so I think those, you know, those engineers, uh, in order to like, you know, bring this technique into the, into the field, like they really need that research to be done by, you know, government and academia. Yeah, so there needs to be a huge investment, not just from, you know, the consulting engineers who are actually building these projects, but also the government agencies and acad- academics who provide the research and the background knowledge needed by them. If we want to see these engineering with nature projects become more widespread, um, there's a, a lot we don't know about them. We don't know enough about oysters. We don't know enough about engineering with oysters. We don't know enough about engineering with oysters under a changing climate. So we need a, a, a big investment from, you know, the whole science community and engineering community if we want to move these projects forward. I mean, literally that, I mean, now the, the difference is, right? I mean, underwater, there are these muddy, shelly places you cut your foot on and, you know, people want to eat them, right? So you don't have that same kind of like, attachment it's hard to go to oyster reef and feel majestic about it i mean you know it's true right and so there's a human perspective that is a bias in terms of the aesthetic of it that makes it really hard for people to attach to it in some way 
And so then you get a bunch of eccentric people like me and others who have these kind of oyster attachment, you know, things or just like they're amazing, you know, but it doesn't, it's hard to get people behind that. So, so the, the restoration efforts and a lot of that stuff is often driven in part by even the industry folks because they recognize for their long-term viability, it's important, but it's hard to take somebody with an oyster reef and get them really excited about it. Right. And they're much closer to home and they're much more relevant. And actually for, for most things, they're actually, even if you're only interested in a resource extraction perspective, you know, the, the data that they have in terms of even the ways in which oyster reefs improve fish production and fisheries because of the habitat it provides for the juvenile nurseries and so on. So, but it just shows our, our bias as humans and our, our attachment to aesthetics, especially when it comes to nature. George just made a really good point. Uh, I think that the oyster, you know, it's underwater. Like you said, you know, it's just not front of mind for a lot of people, even people who live close to the water and, you know, eat oysters. Like, I just don't think they, people necessarily see them and really understand how important they are. But that's why I'm really excited about, uh, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about the Billion Oyster Project, where they're actually taking students and volunteers out and engaging them on a personal level with those environments, like getting them in the water and, and working on with the oysters. And here lo- locally, there's other efforts like the, the Puget Sound Restoration Fund that are doing similar things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even if we feel like there there is not a ton of research being done on these topics or there is a lot of really big questions that are unanswered before we can you know, start moving forward on making these engineering projects a reality. We've heard from our three speakers that there's been a lot of public buy in and investment into restoring natural oyster reefs and using these oyster reefs and coastal engineering projects. Yeah, and I think that public buy-in is like a great source of optimism, like moving forward for uh, as we try to find ways to sort of address some of those big challenges we talked about earlier with climate change. Definitely. And, you know, we're, we're at a point right now where we need to start making some critical decisions about how we manage our coastlines. And in some cases, uh, engineering with oyster reefs might be a really good solution. I felt like you making this podcast that, you know, as I kind of learned more about the oyster and like its history and, you know, all the, the special things about it, I, you know, I became very enamored with it and like, you know, personally invested in a way. And I, I feel like the people that we talked to, you know, we interviewed people for this podcast, like, you know, felt the same way. And so I hope that this podcast has helped some of you become oyster lovers as well. Oh, the oyster passes time serving nature's grand design Without a second thought about his fate He consumes the briny blue, purifies it through and through Until he's plump enough to grace a dinner plate Oh, the oyster, he's the workman of the sea Turning estuary plankton into food for you and me There's nothing moister from the shell when your hunger he dispels or a malady he quells in low and high and shifting tide the oyster is our friend until he meets his culinary end big thank you to our speakers chris langdon george walbusser and rebecca morris our producers megan wengrove peter Ravella, and taylor buckingham and the american shoreline podcast for the opportunity to share this story on engineering with oysters 
The song you heard is The Oyster is Our Friend by Lloyd Vivolo. Finally, a shout out to Jake Light, our co-host, audio engineer, and the pearl of our oyster. I'm John Dickey. I'm Meredith Leung. Thanks for listening. Because the oyster, he's integral to the plan. When he's sucking up organic muck, he's happy as a clam. So let us cloister, tiny spat with tender care on a bed of good repair. So they grow beyond compare. And if we do, they could ensue a blessed morning when the world will be our oyster once again.